This week on Check Your Balances, Jordan Josephs gives us an inside look at what life is like as a celebrity business manager, and he answers the question we all want to know. How accurate is Entourage? Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed. And please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. All right. Welcome back to Check Your Balances. I am Dan Maseka, joined by Ross Anderson. Hey, Ross. Hey, Dan. It's another week. It is. And I'm kind of excited about this week because we get to talk to someone who I've actually known for a while, Jordan Josephs, who is a business manager working with athletes, musicians, and just celebrities in general, which growing up was all I wanted to do in the world. So before we jump into it, because we do want to get right to the interview, if you've got questions, things you want us to cover, things you want our take on, I'm, I'm going to encourage you to, to send us an email, checkyourbalances at outlook.com. We get plenty of junk mail there, but we'd love to hear from our listeners too. Uh, what are you interested in hearing about? If you've got feedback on, on any specific episode, things you want to hear more or less of, we'd love to hear from you. For our interview this week, we have Jordan Josephs, who is a business manager with Singer Lewak focusing on high net worth clientele such as athletes, entertainers, digital talent, and much more. He was recently named as one of Billboard's top 100 business managers for 2021 and also recently named as one of Variety's business managers elite. Jordan, we are thrilled to have you. Thank you for joining us this week. Gentlemen, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, great to be on the show with you. Yeah, great to have you. So to kick things off, you found yourself in a really high profile industry and I think everyone would just love to know how you even get a start in that field. Well, Dan, everyone's path is a little different when you're talking the sports and entertainment industry. Mine is especially unique because I bridge the gap between finance, business, and the entertainment world. I graduated from Syracuse University with a degree of sports management and moved into New York City like most Syracuse grads do. And I worked for a few different pro sports teams doing corporate partnership sales and cut my teeth working my way up from the intern level. I found myself at a major sports agency where I realized that it wasn't the career path that I was really looking for. And I networked my way to this ultra high net worth guy in New York who had a family office out of which he spun a venture capital firm. And we had a really great model at the time. We were helping clients with capital investment, but also providing strategy, business development, marketing, sales, creative services, really anything we could do to help the portfolio company grow. And it was a really great opportunity for me. I learned a lot of different things, was exposed to a lot of different um, you know, financial models, and most importantly, how to leave your ego at the door, which is a really important facet if you want to work in sports or entertainment. So I got to see a lot of different opportunities from across the table, learned a lot of different stuff in the private equity and venture capital worlds, and most importantly, was able to grow my network because my boss opened his Rolodex to me 
And something that I always will thank him for as a mentor because it's been invaluable in my career. I learned how to build relationships. I groomed those relationships to develop new relationships. And, you know, it's something that is the fuel to any successful business being able to build relationships with clients. So we sold one of our portfolio companies and I decided to move to Los Angeles. I had been out here uh, twice for business uh, the previous month. I started a company consulting for tech companies, helping them connect with the sports, entertainment, media world, and the marketplace. Because you know, at the time, managers and agents weren't as concerned about the digital space. I mean, this was when Facebook had just hit a billion users and didn't even know how to monetize on it yet. So... Nowadays, agents, managers are very tech savvy and some of the most digitally savvy uh, guys and gals out there. But at the time, it was still a new thing. And what I realized was there were a lot of tech companies who just didn't have the right relationships. They didn't know how to articulate their product or platform to an executive, to a manager, to an agent who don't really have a lot of time, didn't really understand it and really just wanted to know what does it do for me and my client and how does it benefit us? So just like an athlete has an agent or a brand has an agent, I figured I would rep the tech companies in the marketplace and help them connect. And eventually, a lot of the big agencies, the major agencies, got into the same space and became the major competition. So like any business, I knew that I had to pivot, I had to be nimble, and I had to come up with something that was greater than just continuing to consult for these tech companies. So there was one catalyst that really comes to mind. I was at lunch with a friend of mine who is a music manager. He represents uh, one of the biggest electronic acts probably at that time. And he was telling me about how he had this offer on the table from a major brand and they were going to give him 75K for you know, a social media post and some brand product placements and a music video. Coming from the corporate partnership world, I'm sitting there thinking, well, that's, that type of deal for a client like yours is worth at least a million bucks. So see what you can do, try to renegotiate. And he almost laughed me out of the room, but he did go back and he negotiated 750K, 10X the deal. And I get a call from him the next day saying, hey man, you know, I'd, love, I'd like to talk to you. you know, we have 60 clients in our roster and only the top two get any brand looks or brand equity deals or tech deals, anything like that. So you know, I'd love to learn how we can potentially package them or if you can consult for us a little bit. And that's when the light bulb went off and I realized that instead of working just from the tech side, I could work from the talent side as well, helping them connect with tech companies, media companies, where they could provide value through um, their brand. So the consulting was a little bit different from the talent side because I wasn't helping with things like financial modeling or strategic advisory, but it was definitely unique. And when my buddy called me, I asked him, don't you have a business manager that does this, that looks at startup companies and tech deals? And he said, nah, they barely do our taxes on time. So the light bulb went off and I said, well, the evergreen business is business management where we're helping clients with their taxes, their accounting, their bookkeeping, really the day-to-day stuff that business managers do. But we're going to provide an extra service and value add 
where I was able to bring my experience in the private equity VC space, the corporate partnership space, and do something a little different than what had ever been seen before to create a new opportunity for myself. So Jordan, can you take us through just kind of day to day? What are some of the core services that you're performing for the clients that you have? And I'm sure it's kind of different uh, depending on exactly what they've engaged you for. But can you just kind of take us through what an average client might be receiving in terms of what you do for them? Sure, Ross. So we act as the client's personal CFO and really no two days are exactly the same. So it does keep things exciting. We sit between the manager, the attorney, the agent. Sometimes we act as the liaison to a wealth manager and other parts of the team, depending on what type of clients it is. And our main job is to guide the ship, to guide the client's financial life by taking the work off their desk and letting them focus on what they enjoy doing. So on a daily basis, we normally handle things like their bookkeeping, their accounting work, we take care of their tax returns, whether there's international tax issues, state and local tax issues that a lot of touring music artists might have or athletes might have. We help with things like asset acquisition. If a client wants to go buy jewelry or real estate, a boat, a plane, we'll handle the financing, we'll handle the paperwork. We have relationships with brokers and agents who help uh, get better deals. We help with the negotiation of it all. But I would say one of the biggest part of our job is budgeting, lifestyle planning, and cash flow management. You know, we work closely with financial advisors like yourself to set up a plan while also reviewing investments with their wealth managers. You know, we're not an RIA, so we don't invest our clients' money for them. But we're definitely a part of the process, a lot of times just helping articulate what the um, wealth managers are saying to them and make sure that everything lines up. I break our business into two buckets. One is advising our clients on their personal life, which a lot of times can be like a business in itself. And the second bucket is their companies or their loan out corporations. We consult for them, reviewing financials and figure out how we can enhance the business and operational practices. They're definitely very industry-specific needs, like you said. Like, for example, a music artist might need help with tour budgeting or tour accounting. They need royalty audits uh, for publishing. So we provide support services like that. Actors, for example, have SAG and other guilds that you know involve a lot of reporting and paperwork. They have uh, royalties and participations in their own rights. You know, athletes have unions as well. But, uh, you know, there are very specific needs for uh, each client based on their industry. And again, it makes things very interesting. You know, one day I'll be on the phone with my client's agent talking about the tour that they're routing and, you know, talking about uh, budgeting for that. The next day, I'm on the phone with the uh, front office for a major league baseball team to figuring out you know, what they're doing during the pandemic. And you know, since it was a Canadian team, they were playing down here in North America. And we had to figure out some details around the taxation and, and how they were operating around that. So it's pretty cool. Each industry has their, their unique uh, 
uh, niche needs that we need to cater to. So when you and I spoke a couple weeks back, I found it very interesting you using the term business manager and and family office kind of in different contexts. Can you share a little bit about why that the why those two terms are relevant and why you use them in in different places? I mean, business management and family office services are pretty much the same thing. We use the terms interchangeably, but it's really semantics at the end of the day. In entertainment, executives, managers, agents, attorneys, they know what business managers are, they know what we do, they know what we charge, they know where we sit on the team. But in the sports and entrepreneurial world, when we're working with executives and athletes, it means something completely different when you say business manager. To many athletes, for example, business manager means athlete manager. So they think of somebody else on the team, like maybe it's a friend, their mom, their cousin, who helps on the day-to-day stuff. But they're not accountants, they're not finance people, they're not tax experts or personal CFOs. So what I've found over the years is that using family office services or family office group is much more digestible, especially because when we look at the grand scheme and what an entrepreneur or an athlete needs after their first success, we want to set up that family office. We want to set up almost like a company in itself that runs independently to operate their accounting, their finances, their private equity, venture capital. So again, the terms are very similar. It's really semantics at the end of the day. And it varies depending on you know what industry we're talking to. As I hear that, I mean, the, the two characters, and obviously they're fictional, that come to mind, but I think of Marvin from Entourage and, and then Spencer Strathmore from Ballers, right? Th- those are like the two examples, which I find both of those both really interesting characters in the sense that they have a lot of trouble wrangling their clients constantly, right? It all—it seems like it's a little bit of a mess, and these guys are just like holding on for dear life. And at the same time, what an exciting environment to be in, and and exciting people to be around. How how much of those characters ring true for you? I don't know if you've watched either of those shows, but does that feel like a wild mischaracterization of of the type of work that you do, or or is it is there more truth than fiction there? <laughs> I am very familiar with both of those shows, Ross, and I would say that they're both actually pretty accurate, probably because they're based off real-life stories. I think Entourage is loosely based off Marky Mark, Mark Wahlberg's life and career, and Ballers is rumored to be based off Patrick Kearney, uh, a former DN for the Cardinals and Seahawks, although I'm not 100% sure about if that's true or not. Uh, But it is an accurate depiction of what we do. Marv is probably more like my business partner who's been doing this for about 47 years. You know, the traditional accountant and tax expert. Uh, You know, we spend a lot of time on the phone, just like Marv with our clients, like Vince and E, talking about cash flow, needing more gigs, and trying to talk them out of buying another Maserati for their cousin or their friend. That stuff we're very hands-on with, and we take pride in being able to provide that level of service to our clients, which we're really only able to sustain by not trying to be a volume-based business and staying true to 
our identity as a boutique business management group, even though we're lucky that we're situated within this very well-known CPA firm, top 10 in the region, top 100 in the country, where we have all these resources around us. I mean, I've got an international tax team. I've got a state and local tax team that helps with you know, artists who tour in 30 plus states throughout the year and you know have to file returns for all of them or who are starting companies and merchandising or sales where we have to figure out nexus and how to make sure that they're set up to do business in different states. We have a valuations department. Uh, we have trust and estate planning experts. We have audit. We have forensic accounting and royalty audit. So these are great resources at our disposal that help us as business managers in our day-to-day line of work. I really focus on being a advisor and consultant for my clients, and the only way to be great at it is knowing what your clients are doing on a day-to-day basis. So in that sense, I think I'm more of a hybrid of Marvin Spence in how I interact and help my clients beyond traditional business management. Traditional business management, more on the Marv end of the spectrum, isn't what I would call old-fashioned, but maybe a little old-school in the processes, the technology, the services that are provided. And I think clients today really just demand and need a better service offering. There's always going to be the core business, the core competency that we have to fulfill But I think that there's a much bigger role that could be played, especially when you have a Rolodex, a network to bring to the table, working collaboratively with the management, agents, attorneys. So when we have an artist who's going on tour or we have an athlete who doesn't have a lot of brand deals or the client is interested in getting into private equity or venture capital, I call upon my experience in those areas to help with those types of opportunities and bring brands to the table for endorsement deals, bring sponsorships to the table for tours, identify uh, good opportunities in the venture capital and private equity worlds. Clearly, talent have a lot of great and exciting opportunities coming to them. But what I find most exciting is what you mentioned earlier, being the no man. I'm sure that a lot of crazy and horrible opportunities get presented to people that look exciting. Can you tell us some of the things that come across your table that might be typical of terrible opportunities that your talent may present to you? Dan, there's no terrible opportunities But if you get into business with the wrong people, you're going to regret it. And part of our job is to be the gatekeeper, and that's why we have to say no to certain types of opportunities. We've seen it all, though, from car washes to restaurants. Generally, we would discourage a client from getting involved in a restaurant, although I had one client years ago who got involved with a restaurant, and it was massively successful, so I ended up eating my words on that one. But... If you get involved with the right people in a business and you have the right partner, take the restaurant category as an example, and you partner with a very successful restaurateur with a track record of success, you're probably going to be in a really good position to win. 
We really like to encourage our clients to look at entrepreneurship now while they're working and not waiting until after retirement, whether it be as an investment, as a partner, or as starting something for themselves as a business owner, because there's always going to be life after sports, after music, after acting, after whatever their core business is. We do have clients who are very fortunate in that their business is behind the scenes, behind the camera, where they really can work for the rest of their lives, or at least as long as they want, doing what they do. But if you're an athlete in a high-impact sport or a touring music artist, a lot of times there comes a point where you're going to retire or at least partially retire from what you do. And again, even those clients are very fortunate when they have publishing that they get evergreen royalties from or if there's an athlete who has a licensing deal with a major brand that's ongoing past their career. But even those opportunities are a little uh, far and few in between. There has to be something more, and there has to be a plan for life after that core business. So when you understand that it's about finding the right people with the right model, the importance of our job as the gatekeeper becomes more prevalent because while we don't tell our clients what to invest in or where to put their money, we want to show them the door and steer them in the right direction. So take an athlete for an example. Athletes after they retire generally have a lot of time in their hands. Hopefully, if they had the right advisors, they still have a lot of their money. It's tough for them because you go from doing something at a very high level every day for your career, you're not doing that now. And there's kind of this void, not only in work, but also in life to figure out what your identity is and what's next. So I encourage my clients to think about it now to build something while they're playing so they have that during the off season or when they retire. Athletes and entertainers get to be at the forefront of the networking community. A lot of clients get booked for opportunities by companies like Thusio where they get paid to show up to events or to be a speaker or do an appearance. And that's where things can get kind of sticky. We have clients who have come back and said, hey, I met this guy at this networking event and you know, he has this real estate deal and I want to invest $100,000. And it's our job to run diligence at that point and start asking the right questions. Do they have a business model? The answer is usually no. Do they have other investors? No. Have they invested any of their own money? No. Do they have any financials? No. So why the heck would you invest in that company? If you want to be in real estate, I will help run BizDev to get you in on the right opportunities with the right people who are heavy hitters in the real estate business, REITs and syndications that have a track record of massive success, of hitting grand slams. Those are the people that you want to be involved with. We have a lot of clients who love technology, and it's the same thing. And luckily, because of who the clients are, 
these companies approach them because they want the celebrity on the cap table and they understand the value of having them on the cap table. So there are a lot of opportunities that arise that are close to common folks like you and me, but that are great looks for our clients. And these companies are happy to have the celebrities on their cap table because they understand the value of what I refer to as a brand equity deal. A brand equity deal is a term that refers to a deal that enables the client to get paid in equity instead of cash. Traditionally, brands and companies would pay the clients for an endorsement deal or a sponsorship deal or a licensing deal. And licensing deals are still really great, but I want my clients to start thinking about the future. And instead of taking that $100,000 check today, it probably doesn't make a big difference in their financial landscape anyway. Why not start thinking about investing your time, investing your brand in something that you're passionate about and something that you care about to help it grow, to help it build. And instead of taking that hundred grand today, take a hundred grand of equity so you can make two and a half million in a year, three years, five years down the line. The cool thing is most of the companies that we've worked with in the past aren't just startups. There are many companies who are close to M&A, close to SPACs, IPOs, who want the celebrity on the cap table because they understand the strategic value from a marketing, from a promotional standpoint, as well as from a networking standpoint to help open some doors, and they get the value of that and why that's so important. There's also another piece of the puzzle called earned media, where every time you see that celebrity in a movie or a TV show or you hear their song or you see them on the court or the field or the ice, you associate it with that company, which then in turn creates virality, it creates excitement and awareness to the brand. When they bring that added value to the equation, it builds brand equity for that brand or that startup company. And so, you know, when you think of some of the most popular um, uh, examples like 50 Cent and Vitamin Water or Honesty with Jessica Alba, it becomes very apparent that the value that um, this, the client can bring to the table can really be a game changer for uh, a company or a consumer brand. So one of the things, uh, as you think about the type of people that you work with, with and athletes, that I would find really difficult is really kind of the, the income trajectory, right? So for most people, you start in your career, you're making a low amount of dollars, relatively speaking, early on, and that's going to increase steadily. And uh, that does a lot of things for us. Number one, early on, if you make a mistake, if you do something stupid, you know, yeah, it might hurt, but it's probably not going to impact the rest of your life because you know, smaller dollars at stake. With an athlete, they're at peak earnings potential, essentially coming right out of school and, and shortly thereafter, where the propensity to make a mistake is probably the highest with finances. How do you account for that and just kind of the uncertainty around how long a career can last, particularly in athletics, where, where it's so competitive, so difficult on the body? Because you can look at somebody making a million a year 
And it would be tough to even come up with how conservative or aggressive to be with a spending plan or a savings target if you have no idea how long that career is going to last. So I'm just thinking, how do you frame that for people or or what's step one in your mind of going through that process? Fail early and learn from your mistakes. It's okay if you make a financial error early in your career. You'll probably be able to recover from it. But if you make that same mistake after you retire, it could be detrimental to your financial health. Going back to the conversation about surrounding yourself with the right people, if you have the right advisors, they'll know that they have to take a very conservative approach to generate a financial plan that goes with your career. I'm very big on budgeting. If you have an amazing budget and it's well executed, the possibilities are unlimited. And it enables you to free up cash to put in investment opportunities that kick off income that ultimately should be able to pay the bills. But we have to figure out what the risk tolerance is for each of our clients, what income they have, what their portfolio looks like and come up with educated plans based off of the information. The other big thing is building your brand. If you build your brand, they will come. Say you're a touring music artist, and you know you're not going to want to tour for the rest of your life. You might have income streams from royalties, from merch, and that's great, but I want my clients to start thinking differently. If you have other interests, say like skateboarding or esports and streaming, build a brand around that. All of our clients should think as influencers because that's what they are. They have an online presence, they have a following, and it's easier for them to build than anybody else because the algorithms work in their favor. So if you can build a brand, you can grow something out of nothing. Say that you're the sixth guy in the NBA in a soft market. You're making five million bucks a year. Maybe you have 100,000 Instagram followers. Why not build a brand around something you're passionate about? For example, it's a silly example, but say you're a dog lover. Build a brand around being a dog lover. You're going to hit a whole demographic of people, of fans, who might not even care about basketball, but who love dogs. You have your basketball followers, and in the middle of the Venn diagram, you have the basketball lovers who also love dogs. But once you build that brand around being a dog lover, it grows your following, but it also produces new opportunities for you down the line, say, for a partnership with Petco or to start a dog food company in the off-season or after you retire. So build the brand, leverage that brand to grow and establish something for yourself. I have a good friend who was in the NBA for, I believe, 14 seasons. He was a journeyman, and he was incredibly smart with how he networked while he traveled around playing in all the different markets that he played in. He was on, I think, three or four of the 
biggest teams in the biggest markets from Miami to New York to DC to Toronto to Chicago. And he worked really hard playing, but he also understood that it would benefit him in the long run if he went out, met other athletes, entertainers, entrepreneurs, executives in each of those markets. And today he's got one of the biggest networks out of anybody that I know. He went out of his way to network with these people, but he's also a great guy. He's genuine and he built the relationships with these people before he needed anything from them. And really coming from a place of true authenticity. So he built this community for himself. And now he can do anything in the business world. And he's running a really great company that he started six years ago that's seeing massive success that he was able to grow through these relationships. So think about your career now, but also think about building for the future and how you can leverage your brand for the future. You know, Ross, you talk about a rookie contract and how he's making a million out of school, and it's amazing you can make that kind of money doing what you love. And it's kind of weird to say, but it's almost more difficult when there's more money involved because... There are more people you have to take care of, more companies you're running, more assets you have, more financing you're working with, more comprehensive trust and estate plan. So you have to stick to the original plan and, like I said earlier, evolve the plan with the growth of your career. What most people don't realize is say you're making 10 million bucks a year, it's amazing But the more that you make, the more that you spend. And there are a lot of players, for example, like Rob Gronkowski and Alvin Kamara, who are known as never having touched a dime from their NFL contracts, who are pretty frugal with their money. But everybody's different. Everybody has different lifestyles. And you have to plan around that lifestyle because... Say you're making that 10 million bucks a year and you're spending 8 million of it, it can't keep up. You have to pay taxes, you have to pay your team. And when you're not making that 10 million anymore and you're continuing to spend that 8 million, well, it runs out pretty quick. Also, when you put it into perspective, into the grand scheme, and going back to why we try to plan on having the right investment mix to kick off enough income for daily bills is that if you play in the league for five years and you're making 10 million a year, that's $50 million and that's a ton of money. But that 50 million has to last you the next 50, 60 plus years of your life. And so when you really break it down, if you don't have the right investment mix and the right plan that's less than a million dollars to live off of per year pre-tax. So again, you can't live a lavish lifestyle or a lifestyle you might want to with just a million dollars when you're spending eight million now while you're playing. So we have to think conservatively and build from there. I love that. Yeah, I, I think of it almost like a pyramid, right? You, you've got you've to secure your needs first before you can kind of start building into some of those 
higher risk pieces with illiquidity or kind of higher risk of uh, capital loss. And and I, I hear you saying that pretty clearly, which is great. Yeah, it goes back to something you said earlier as well, as you look at the overall pie and find what piece of the pie you can allocate towards some of these other things, which is very much something that Ross and I talk about all the time with people too, is what percentage of your net worth do we need to protect and what portion can we use to, to go do all the fun stuff that you that you want to invest in. You talked a little bit about the exciting and, and maybe not so exciting opportunities that you get from outside entrepreneurs trying to get your talent to invest with them. One thing I'm curious about is I'd love to know a little bit about what the stock portfolios of your clients look like. Do you see a lot of index funds and mutual funds or are people doing things outside of the box for the most part? I'll just preface the answer by saying we're not an RIA registered investment advisor. We don't tell our clients where to put their money or what to invest in. We rely heavily on the financial advisors and wealth managers to help with that stuff and surround them with the right people. We have clients who are in all ranges of sophistication of investments, from executive and entrepreneurs who are very sophisticated investors, who have very detailed opinions about where they want their money to be. And we have other clients who don't want to have anything to do with it and say, you guys handle it. So it really depends on who the client is and the range of their interests, but it can vary pretty drastically. We do see a lot of clients who come into us with prior relationships with wealth managers that were put into mutual funds that didn't necessarily make the most sense because it was the easiest, quickest thing to do or there was the biggest benefit to the advisor's business. And you know, part of our job is to identify those things and figure out whether or not the portfolio makes sense and work with the advisors to help diversify in such a way that will benefit the client. But at the end of the day, when the advisors are great at what they do, there's very little need for our involvement and we let the pros do their job. Our clients range very diversely from ETFs to mutual funds to index funds to alternative investments, from real estate to cryptocurrency. But it goes back to the conversation about how you surround yourself with the right team. And it's tough. Imagine whether you come from nothing or a place or a community with all the resources in the world. How do you find somebody that you trust? How do you find somebody who knows what the they're doing because it isn't always based on who their other clients are or how much money they have under management. Those are all factors that contribute to deciding who you want to work with, but it shouldn't be exclusive to that. And I think it's difficult for anybody to identify. So um, I used to speak on panels about financial literacy, and I, I would see the same faces. And the information would go in one ear and out the other, and I realized that we shouldn't be trying to teach these guys and gals how to be business managers or accountants or wealth managers. We should be teaching them how to find the right advisors. 
if you surround yourself with the right team, you're going to set yourself up for success and win every day of the week. Yeah, a lot a lot of that rings really true what what you said. I mean, even when you see lists ranking financial advisors, normally what they're ranking is just whether or not you do a lot in production. And being big and managing a lot of money doesn't always correspond with being the best at this or being the most ethical or or any of those components that you're addressing. So because of the types of folks you work with, I'm, I'm curious about this. There's websites out there like Celebrity Net Worth that are essentially trying to assign a value to the net worth of all of these kind of public personalities. And on a much smaller scale, I think many of us love to do this with like Zillow or Redfin and look at like housing estimates. But do you find, is is there any truth or or how close do you think some of those celebrity net worth estimates are? And is there like, is, is that even a reliable estimate like a Zillow might be, or is it completely wild? Ross, you and I must be the same type of weird because in the tiny bit of free time that I do have, I do actually enjoy scanning Zillow as well. So I know where you're coming from on that. But it's bogus. You know, it's all bogus. Could there be truth to it? Sure. Sometimes there's somewhat accurate, but other times they're not. My understanding is those crawlers are really just aggregating data from different public records. But what does that even mean? A lot of times, and part of our job, we act as a back office or a central office for our clients. So we receive their mail to the office because they might have six properties and you don't know what property they're going to be at any given day of the week. So we receive the mail for them. We scan it into their portal so they can access it from anytime, anywhere. And uh, mostly for my own selfish reasons, so that we receive all of the tax notices so they're not sitting in a mailbox or a pile of mail because they're not opening mail for eight months or a year. And we find out an action needed to be taken. But also because of privacy reasons. We don't want anybody knowing what property our clients own, where they live, where they can be found by the paparazzi or fans. So how accurate can those crawlers be if we put the property into a trust or an LLC? They don't know. I mean, there's some sort of anonymity to it. And, you know, I think that that's um, a, a big piece of, uh, of us helping secure our clients and uh, their lives. You know, we even get our clients' fan mail to our office. It doesn't go to their house. So, um, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of uh, validity to to those crawlers at all from what I've seen. I'm curious about a trend that I've seen in entertainment and with creators and what your view on it is. But I've noticed that as the years go by, the distance between the artist and the revenue continues to shrink. And we're seeing more and more platforms where people can provide their art directly to the people buying it instead of going through all these middle channels. I'm curious if that's something people are talking about and how that's viewed from the inside, whether the middlemen are getting upset or what you see coming down the pike for people like musicians who can, instead of distributing through record labels and record stores, can just sell directly to me. Yeah, there's no question about that, Dan. And this isn't exclusive to the music business. uh, And I'll talk about that in a second. But I don't think anybody 
from the middleman perspective is salty about it, I think that there's still a place for record labels, distribution companies, publishing companies uh, that play a very vital role. You know, I can sell you my music and you can buy it directly from me, but I still need to market it to you. I have to get it in front of you to get your awareness on it. So there's always a role for the labels, for the publishing companies, for the distribution companies. The giants, the big media companies, the social media companies, they know how to evolve because we've seen it. You either evolve or you die. You know, uh, in the tech world, a day is a week, a week is a month, a month is a year. And so companies that have been around for a decade or more now, like a Facebook, have learned that they either need to buy, build, or partner. Okay, so to grow, you either build your own IP, you buy IP like widgets or Instagram that fulfill a need that are niche or connect the the dots, or you partner with the company, which they don't need to do at this point because they have enough money to buy or build their own IP. What I find more interesting is that, you know, take modeling, for example, you know, uh, there initially was Patreon that got into the space and now OnlyFans, which is really well known throughout that community where you can create new opportunities and new revenue streams for yourself through those platforms. Now, what I try to remind my clients of is that we commoditize those platforms thinking that we need that medium to connect with our audience, to distribute the content. But the truth is, especially for newer startup uh, companies, they need you just as much as you need them. When you have 2 million followers on your Instagram and you're driving all of your traffic to that platform, you're providing a value add to them because you're bringing your network to them just as much as you're getting exposure to their existing network. And so it's kind of a symbiotic relationship. But I have one client who has such a big following that she just started distributing her content on her own website and she's still on OnlyFans, but only for the purpose of getting exposure to their network. But any of her super fans know that they can go straight to her site for exclusive content or maybe better price content. So we have to think outside the box using these types of technologies or platforms helps us do that, but we have to think even further past that as to how the talent can recapture their business and in turn capture more of their revenue without having to pay these huge commissions. Six weeks ago, I had a friend whose client sold an NFT, non-fungible token, for a million dollars. Before four weeks ago, nobody had heard of it unless you were a nerd like me dabbling in the crypto sphere since 2015 or earlier for a lot of my friends. But 
Now, it's a daily term that you hear being used. We, we covered it in our, our show a couple of weeks ago just to explain it to people on, on what non-fungible tokens are and what, why you're hearing, hearing about them for the first time. So no, I, I agree with you. It, it's been super recent. I love looking ahead at some of those trends, and you're probably on the inside of that because all those early opportunities are funneling through to, to people like you to help their clients vet them. Well, Jordan, I know we've kept you a long time. I appreciate you spending the afternoon with us today. No, thank you guys, Dan. It was a real pleasure, and I appreciate you guys having me on the show. Uh, hopefully, it gives a little insight into the glamorous world of the sports and entertainment industry. Also want to give a shout out, Project Parallel Studios. Thanks for having me in today, recording live from Los Angeles. I uh, hope everybody stays well and stays safe out there. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks again, Jordan, for giving us the inside look. Again, Jordan Josephs with Singer Lewak. Join us next week on Check Your Balances.